Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We've got all crazy martinis for you, Jim. If you thought last week was crazy, I have a feeling that this week is going to be just as crazy, if not crazier. And we are certainly in a position to make that happen as we start with our first martinis of this week. So I hope you folks got a lot of rest over the weekend. I hope that you're ready for the onslaught that is coming this week. And let's just dive right in, starting with the President of the United States. Uh, President Trump has spent a lot of time on Twitter this weekend. And, Jim, that means we were exposed to a lot of cogent, rational, sober-minded, non-overreactive thoughts uh, regarding impeachment and a lot of other things. Uh, Just a couple different things here. Uh, One of them we actually talked about last week, and that was Adam Schiff pretty much making up a fictional version of the transcript. Uh, Trump tweeting about this a couple different times. The first time he says his lies, meaning shifts, were made in perhaps the most blatant and sinister manner ever seen in the great chamber. He wrote down and read terrible things, then said it was from the mouth of the president of the United States. I want shift questioned at the highest level for fraud and treason. Then this morning, Representative Adam Schiff illegally made up a fake and terrible statement, pretended it to be mine as the most important part of my call to the Ukrainian president and read it aloud to Congress and the American people. It bore no relationship to what I said on the call. Arrest for treason? And then in another tweet, he's quoting uh, his uh, strong supporter, the pastor, Robert Jeffress, out of Texas, who says, if the Democrats are successful in removing the president from office, which they will never be, I think that's Trump's commentary on that, it will cause a civil war-like fracture in this nation from which our country will never heal. So, Jim, uh, what Schiff did was terrible. It is not treason. And I don't know that uh, talking about another civil war does anybody any good. So what do you make of uh, the president's behavior here over the last, whatever, 48, 72 hours? One of the reasons he is difficult to defend is that he'll have a situation where his opposition has done something wrong. You could probably argue that the situation with Hunter Biden is a classic example of this. Yeah, listeners, if you haven't read it already, I went through and it is a 3,000 page, uh, a 3, 000, sorry, 3,000 word Probably probably felt like it. (laughs) It it did feel like 3,000 pages. 3,000 word summary, basically a timeline of everything we know about what Hunter Biden has done, his business associates, his deals, his partners, lawsuits, uh, indictments of business partners, the whole nine yards. I put it all out there. Every one of these situations, a lot of the defenses will be, well, look, it showed bad judgment, but nothing Hunter Biden did or nothing Joe Biden did was illegal. No, but if you go back to like 2006, the exact same things keep happening over and over again. And you can very much say, okay, this is a pattern of not an individual mistake or or bad judgment here and there. This is consistently creating the conflict, the perception of a conflict of interest. You've got an issue here that Trump could very well use. What does he do? He asks the Ukrainian president to look into it. Now, again, if he wanted, you know, the attorney general to do so, great. If he wanted, uh, Interpol to look into whether there was some sort of international bribery going on. He can do that, but instead he goes directly and he sells them, go work with my personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. Does not, you know, that that looks bad. Schiff then goes out and makes a giant, glaring, unforced error, right? The transcript is pretty bad, but that's not good enough for Schiff. Schiff has to then do what he says is a parody, 
what is he? This is Saturday Night Live. Does he think this is some sort of up to you know? This is the moment for Adam Schiff to show his uh, great skills as a comedy writer. Greg, shouldn't he know that's our job? <laughs> that's right. Um, no, but so like, it was like so he does. I you know this is an astonishingly dumb thing for Schiff to do because my my sense is a lot of people out in the general public who don't follow politics as closely as you I and probably most of our listeners. As far as I know, Schiff is the guy who's been saying this the whole Russiagate thing was going to lead to impeachment all along, and it didn't. And that the Mueller report was going to have this great, you know, uh, bombshell, and it really didn't, the way Democrats expected. And, uh, and, you know, early on, Schiff was one of those guys who started saying Mueller didn't look hard enough in his, you know, nearly two-year review. So this is a self-beclowning on the part of Adam Schiff. And, and this is the sort of thing, that old saying of Napoleon, when your enemy is destroying himself, do nothing. What does Trump have to do? Call it for treason. <laughs> Dear God, someone in the White House, please, there must be a dictionary in the White House, right? It's a big building, a lot of books in there. Someone must have a dictionary where they can look up treason and say, look, saying something that mocks, that, you know, falsely imputes words to the president, you know, in an attempt to mock him while chairing a committee hearing, it's bad, but it's not treason. And this is, you know, at the heart of this is this idea that Trump can't distinguish between himself and the country. It's very Napoleonic. The state is I, uh, the state is me. Um, that every time, you know, people do things that Trump doesn't like and that are against Trump, Trump says, it's treason. No, <laughs> it's not in this case. And then, of course, because also the other thing, which I think it was William Weld stepped into this, he said, "No treason. You know, the, uh, the, you know, the death penalties can be for treason. Nobody is going to execute Trump. No one's going to execute Adam Schiff. <laughs> Everybody calm down. Of course, they don't do that. And of course, the next thing you do, like if you wanted to say, how do you get the United States to get closer to a civil war, Greg? I think an important step would be for our political leaders to start talking about a civil war ideation, right? You know, things are unthinkable until they aren't. And once you start thinking about it, and once you start talking about it, it becomes a lot more plausible and likely to happen. Certain terrible things have not happened in this country because we don't talk about it, because we don't think about it. Once we start thinking about it, we start talking about it. And once you start talking about it, it becomes a lot easier to do. But uh, hey, what do I know, Greg? Jim, that Napoleonic quote is going to come in pretty handy today. Because, uh, once again, if you missed it just a moment ago, your enemy is destroying himself, do nothing, or something to that effect. Um, That's all Joe Biden needed to do, too. But no, no, he can't do that. Weirdly, Joe Biden and his campaign send out this demand to the mainstream media, just as addressed to all. We're writing today with grave concern that you continue to book Rudy Giuliani on your air to spread false debunked conspiracy theories on behalf of Donald Trump. While you often fact check his statements in real time during your discussions, that is no longer enough. By giving him your airtime, you are allowing him to introduce increasingly unhinged, unfounded, and desperate lies into the national conversation. Oh, here's where it gets good. We write to demand that in service to the facts, you no longer book Rudy Giuliani. This is all in bold. A surrogate for Donald Trump who has demonstrated that he will knowingly and willingly lie in order to advance his own narrative. So, Jim, you're in the media. If somebody tells you, hey, whatever you do, don't interview that person. What are you going to do? I will immediately knock people over on my way to the phone to book that person. (laughs) Um, also regarding that letter, I don't have a piece of paper in front of me. And usually it's very good. I could make a good crinkle, 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 crankle noise and the sound of it being tossed into the waste paper basket. I, but what's really kind of interesting to uh, 
to analyze here is so what, what is the, the Biden campaign trying to do here? Because they, they, they're not they're presumably not dumb guys or not all dumb guys. Over there. <laughs> they can't possibly think that the networks will say, well, Biden has asked us not to book the Giuliani anymore. So we'd better not book him anymore. That uh, that has to be off the table from now. We've we've got a letter from Biden's campaign and it looks like the lawyer signed it, guys. So you know what that means. You know, We dare not cross uh, them over this. There's this kind of little happy fairy tale that certain Democrats told themselves to explain the 2016 election, which is that somehow Hillary Clinton just didn't go after Donald Trump enough, that somehow Hillary Clinton just didn't fight hard enough. And, you know, some of us might say, yeah, you know, you, you didn't go to Wisconsin. You know, that's that's one way to fight hard, you know. But the idea is that somehow the Hillary Clinton campaign uh, underestimated Trump and didn't take him seriously. And as a result, didn't fight him with all the resources they have didn't use every maneuver they had, and she was kind of a pushover. She was much weaker than she appeared to be, and that's why she lost. And you you and I would agree in parts, but disagree very strongly in other parts. This example is a Biden campaign trying to say, look how tough we are, right? We're not just sitting here and taking these smears from Rudy Giuliani. We're telling the networks they can't put them on this guy on there. Now, again, they know it's not going to happen. The second thing is, is it presuming the networks, you know, don't stop, they, presuming that they continue to book Rudy Giuliani, the Biden campaign will then get to say, see, the media is against us. Now, there have been some pieces about Biden that have been fairly tough over the course of this cycle. There have also been quite a few that have been kind of kind and, you know, soft focus and talking about Bo Biden and, you know, uh, all of that. And, and kind of this, you know, relatively, it's, you know, relatively friendly coverage of Joe Biden. A lot of reporters have known Joe Biden for a very long time. This is what happens when you have somebody who's been talking to Washington reporters since the 1970s. But, you know, so if you're, you know, nobody wants to be, hey, we're the candidate who has the media on our side. <laughs> everyone likes to play the underdog and everyone likes to say that when there's a negative story about them, well, you know, the media, they're out to get us. They hate us. Right. You and I would probably argue that uh, conservatives and Republicans have a stronger case for that argument than other ones. Probably the, the Bernie Sanders campaign could say, hey, wait a minute, there are a whole bunch of people in the media who are in the tank for Hillary Clinton during that 2016 primary, and we didn't get the kind of coverage we deserved, or we got harsher coverage. I don't think it's going to work. I don't think you can make the argument that there's a vast anti-Joe Biden animus at work in the mainstream media, probably in some corners. I think you can probably say that, yeah, there are a bunch of folks where from the tone and the way they write about these things, it certainly seems like they prefer Elizabeth Warren. But the idea that the media is somehow operating on some sort of pro-Trump bias is pretty laughable. And I think this is a uh, uh, something of a desperation move. Another example, kind of a, there's a, I wrote about in today's Morning Jolt, everybody's got their outrage turned up to 11. And as a result, they react to everything on the most, you know, um, furious, frothing tone possible. And as a result of that, everybody eventually tunes it out because it's all the same stuff they've been hearing for a really long time. Jim, as you said, uh, it's unlikely that at least most media outlets are going to uh, say, oh, OK, well, we just won't have Rudy on anymore. But uh, and, and we talk about this a lot. What if it had happened in the opposite direction? Did you see Brian Stelter or anybody else on the left or even just in, in the mainstream media in general, not just mention that the Biden campaign made this statement, but actually condemn the fact that a person running for president was trying to demand what the press could and couldn't do? Uh, didn't see it. Now, what you're seeing here is kind of an elaboration of a, you know, some of past campaigns we've seen. Um, one campaign puts up a really hard hitting ad. 
and the opposing campaign believes that it's false, that there's something you know wrong in it. And usually they write letters to the local television stations saying, you are participating in false advertising. And if you run that ad, we will take action against you. Now, you know, WHAT in Dubuque, Iowa, uh, just wants to make money and just wants to run ads. They're not, you know, they're not really in the job of fact checking and uh, evaluating the content of these ads. They're their only thing they're supposed to do is to kind of check the are you advertising for something fraudulent? Are you advertising for something that's, you, know, you can tell as a con? Um, most television stations don't want to get into the role of deciding whether it's a fair ad or an unfair ad. So I suppose this is like just the next natural step of that is that not only can we dictate what kind of ads you run, we can dictate what guests you have in your programs. Because, you know, nothing bad could come from that, right? The government saying who you can and can't have on your programs. Right, exactly. Well, we've talked about Trump, we've talked about Biden, we've mentioned Hillary, but let's talk about her some more. She's got a new book coming out that she's written with Chelsea. It's about gutsy women, and one of the people profiled is herself. So you know where this is probably going to end up. But uh, she was on CBS this morning with Jane Pauley. Yes, that show is still on the air. And uh, she was, of course, asked about Trump and uh, the latest allegations. And Jim... Let's just say it's the same tired old story from Hillary Clinton. We're almost in October here in 2019, which means we're almost at the three-year anniversary of the last debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And one of the questions that Chris Wallace asked Donald Trump is, will you accept the results of this election? And he basically said, stay tuned, I'll let you know. And Hillary Clinton went into this. Oh, holier-than-thou uh, screed about how it was just an abomination to democracy. Listen back here. This is what happened in October of 2016. I will tell you at the time. I'll keep you in suspense. Well, okay? Chris, let me respond to that because that's horrifying. That is not the way our democracy works. We've been around for 240 years. We've had free and fair elections. We've accepted the outcomes when we may not have liked them. And that is what must be expected of anyone standing on a debate stage during a general election. And let's, you know, let's be clear about what he is saying and what that means. He is denigrating. He's talking down our democracy. And I, for one, am appalled that somebody who is the nominee of one of our two major parties would take that kind of position. So here we are almost three years after the election, Jim. And here's her thoughts on the election. I believe he knows he's an illegitimate president. He knows. He knows that there were a bunch of different reasons why the election turned out the way it did. And I take responsibility for those parts of it that I should. But, Jane, it was like applying for a job and getting 66 million letters of uh, recommendation and losing to a corrupt human tornado. And so I know that he knows that this wasn't on the level. I don't know that we'll ever know everything that happened, but clearly we know a lot and are learning more every day, and history will probably sort it all out. So, of course, he's obsessed with me, and I believe that it's a guilty conscience in so much as he has a conscience. So still pushing the popular vote line there, Jim. Look, I understand it's probably really embarrassing to lose to a corrupt human tornado, but those are the facts. I was going to say that if you believe that Trump is obsessed with Hillary Clinton, I think it's very safe to say that Trump, at the very least, enjoys reminding people that he beat Hillary Clinton every opportunity he gets, right? You know, it's very possible his last, you know, words on his deathbed will be, I beat her. Or some variation of, and I would have won the popular vote too if it hadn't been for the illegals. 
So if, if you think the argument that Trump is not focused on the here and now in the 2019 on what's going to be facing the country in 2020, and if he's still obsessed with reliving the glory days or relitigating his victory over 2016, then probably the best thing that for the Democrats, for, for Trump opponents, and probably for Hillary Clinton as well, would be to go on another one of those long walks in Chappaqua and just keep walking and, and stay away from the cameras and stay away from the microphones. That I'm sure you have to feel like probably every 2020 Democratic contender is like, Hillary, you had your shot. It didn't work out. Please step off the stage so that we don't have this. Because one of the arguments from the Trump folks is this is from people who've never accepted the legitimacy of the 2016 election. All of this is about trying to undo that election any way they possibly can. And the more Hillary Clinton jumps out and says, yeah, he should be impeached, the more it looks like, oh, okay, this really is the same old crowd trying to get rid of the president for the same old reasons. Now, I think you'd very much make a strong argument that it's not that, but it doesn't help when Hillary jumps out into this stuff. Hillary wants, you know, Trump wants this to be a fight between he and Hillary again. And I think Hillary Clinton kind of wants on some level this to be a fight on Hillary. She can't resist the urge to jump out and say, yeah, it wasn't really a legit win. It doesn't really count, um, which is, as you pointed out, so obviously echoes the things he was saying before uh, uh, the 2016 election. And oh, by the way, his civil war talk and, and all that kind of stuff kind of indicates that after 2020, if he loses at the ballot box, he might say, oh, this is not legitimate. Uh, oh, they cheated, blah, 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 blah. There's an argument of why aren't Republicans all as one going together to Trump to say, look, the handwriting is on the wall. Um, it's time for you to move on. It's time for you to step down. Could the Democrats send the same little group of lawmakers to talk Hillary down? Um, there's this picture floating around. Apparently she went to see Frozen on Broadway, Greg. Okay. And she posed with the actress who plays Elsa. Now you have young daughters. I'm sure you're, you know, you've heard this song a bazillion times. Oh, yes. How perfect is it that the woman who sings Let It Go <laughs> is meeting with Hillary? True. Oh, so true. Yeah, I could probably tell you most of the lyrics on that one. Um, <laughs> and, and there's been some rumors, you know, because she's doing these interviews. I assume they're mainly related to the fact that she's available because the book's out. But people are saying, oh, Hillary's reemerging. She might be a late entry here, especially if Biden stumbles. I don't think that's going to happen. But uh, what Hillary fails to understand and what most failed politicians uh, fail to understand is the main reason she lost, people don't like you. And that is just the fact. I mean, you looked at the, the positives and the negatives from 2016. Both Hillary and Trump were completely in the tank. And uh, enough people in the right states decided to take a chance with the person they didn't know as well politically, with the person that they really did and really didn't like. Yeah. And, you know, that's probably a really tough, it's a tough sandwich to swallow, so to speak. That, that, that's a bitter pill, or to, to paraphrase John Oliver, it would be a bitter pill to, to swallow if you could get the pill, but you can't because healthcare.gov is down. What it means is that, you know, Hillary, you know, who, who entered the national stage in January 1992, that uh, big, you know, live televised interview right after the Super Bowl in 60 Minutes where he didn't, you know, Bill Clinton denied that affair with Jennifer Flowers. Oh, by the way, he was sleeping with Jennifer Flowers, meaning the first appearance of Hillary Clinton on national television was to lie to the American people. People concluded, yeah, we don't want any more of this. And then that, that, that must stink, particularly if you've wanted something like the presidency your entire life, first woman to get a nomination of a major party. Yeah, it's a huge, you know, yes, it's really tough. But her reemergence, the more time she spends on the public stage between now and Election Day 2020, isn't going to help her party, isn't going to help the causes she claims to support. And, you know, the other thing is that, uh, am I quoting Ecclesiastes here, to everything there is a season? Yes. Um, 
you're going to have to help me, Greg. Occasionally, I'll, I'll have my own two Corinthians moments here and there. Yes, Ecclesiastes is correct. Chapter three. Okay, thank you. All right, good note. Next category in jeopardy. The, you know, the, the, time, the season of the Clintons has ended. And it's time for them to ride off into the sunset. Enjoy their golden years. Go do whatever you guys want to do. But American politics has moved on. And she doesn't want to do it. And Greg, this could turn out to be a minor headache for her party. Or it could turn into a major headache for her party if she really re- chooses to remain on the stage. Either way, she'll probably give us a lot of crazy markings. Last 30 seconds. If you're the Democratic National Committee, do you let her speak at the convention next year? No. Wow. <laughs> I didn't need 30 seconds for that one. <laughs> I didn't need three. Oh, I can't even imagine how they're going to react if that's the case. But you might very well be right. I think they want to just uh, put the Clintons in the rearview mirror and, uh, and move on. But we'll see if the Clintons let them do that. Uh, Jim? You know, what would, you know what advice I would give to the Democratic National Committee as they're planning that 2020 convention, Greg? I'm sure they'd love to hear it. What do you have for them? Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. <laughs> Because it'll soon be here. Jim, <laughs> three crazies. Let's see if we can get about 12 more this week. See you tomorrow. Oh, I'm betting on 15. See you tomorrow, Greg. <laughs> Jim Garrity, National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Please subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. And uh, give us a great review over at iTunes, too, if you like the podcast. And tune in again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. <laughs>